is here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, You know, I am the cleanup hitter. I have to clean things up at the end of the day and lay the foundation for the next day. For my colleagues in radio and TV, I do the best I can. And we'll continue to do so. There's been a lot of talk today, I'm told, and I read about a stunning revelation. A stunning revelation. That Jim Comey and the FBI, after retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn was interviewed, did not think he lied. They did not think he lied. This has been all over the media today been all over conservative media, newspapers, all over conservative websites. They didn't think he'd lied. And yet under Mueller, of course, he's charged. So I picked up the phone and I called Mr. Producer. I said, uh, Mr. Producer, how do you stop a fax machine from ringing when you don't even receive faxes? I said, Mr. Producer, did we not talk about that two, three months ago? So Mr. Producer went digging. He said, yes, we did. As a matter of fact, this was reported first on December 1, 2017, two and a half months ago, by Catherine Herridge at the Fox News Channel. I said, I thought so. December 1, 2017, so why are people reporting it now and acting as if it's brand new? Here it is, cut to go. And my colleague, Brett Baer, received some information earlier today from a source who has knowledge of FBI Director Comey's testimony to Congress earlier this year that his agents felt that Flynn hadn't deliberately misled them. But stop, they... stop, stop. So, Mr. Comey... Now, now, this is taped. This is me speaking taped. December 1, 2017. Go ahead. FBI Director, at the time, at the time... Behind closed doors told Congress that they didn't feel that Flynn's comments were intentional. In other words, United States Code 1000, 18 U.S.C. 1001, false statements to federal investigators, government investigators. They didn't pull that trigger because they didn't think it met the standards. They thought that his state of mind was more confusion and lack of memory, not that he intentionally failed to tell them. And why would he intentionally fail to tell them? It's not a crime for him to have spoken to the Russians. And yet Mr. Mueller decided it was. All right, now I'm live. So this is reported first by Catherine Herridge, Fox News, from a source that she got, I mean, uh, from Brett Baer, who, who told her from his source. This is two and a half months old. And we spent a goodly amount of time on this. It's two and a half months old. We spent a good amount of time on it. I spent time talking about, then Mueller took over the case, and they must have squeezed him, and this, that, and the other. For the life of me, I don't know why two and a half months later, we act as if this is a breaking story. It's an important story, but it is part of the 
of the pathway that we're building to get to the to the bottom here. So why would we circle back, repeat something that took place that was reported two and a half months ago, and act like, "Wow, my God, look, I had no idea." Of course, we had a lot of ideas. Of course, we did. That's number one. Number two, this FISA issue. I've heard people talking about this, or I'm getting emails that people are talking about this. And Barack Obama said, we talked about this way back in February of 2017. Now, again, I'm not doing this because I went, you know, I said first, I said second, I said, has nothing to do with it. This is ground that's already been covered. On February 15th, February 15th, here's what took place, 2017, a year ago, a year ago, come Thursday. Almost a full year ago, February 15th. Cut one, go. I have the real question today. What did Barack Obama know and when did Barack Obama know it? Now let's stop right there. That's the old Watergate line from Howard Dean asking about Nixon. The next morning, headlines blared everywhere. The whole newspaper, Joe Contra, February 17th, 7.58 a.m. Mark Levin on Flynn intercepts. Mike Flynn intercepts. Quote, what did Barack Obama know and when did he know it? Conservative Review, Mark Levin. What did Barack Obama know and when did he know it? And there's a reason for this. I want to explain. Go ahead. White House and his staff, let me help the feckless Republicans. Let me just help. The fact of the matter is, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn's phone calls were being intercepted and recorded during the Obama administration. Now, some might say, well, they do this routinely because they were, they were tapping into the Russian ambassador's phone conversations. First of all, if that's true, and now that's been leaked, that's a very severe breach of our national intelligence methods. But it's more than that. Whoever was listening in on the conversations and recording them knew full well that it wasn't just the re- Russian ambassador that it was retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, transition advisor to the President of the United States, and the likely Director of National Security Council once Donald Trump was inaugurated. So stop. When they were leaking Flynn's name and unmasking him, and everybody, wow, Flynn, he must have Flynn. I said, whoa, whoa, breaks again. They were surveilling in a way that they got a top foreign policy advisor to the president, the incoming president of the United States. They leaked his name. So they were either, you know, there was spying going on, some kind of uh, espionage taking place, either through the regular course of business or through a FISA. Way back, February 15th. I don't just shoot from the hip. I'm not a blowhard. I've got experience. Something wasn't right about this. Go ahead. Orders come from to intercept these phone calls, to record these phone calls. How many more phone calls involving Michael Flynn and other would-be administration officials were intercepted and recorded? 
where the President of the United States, the now President of the United States, Donald Trump, where his phone calls intercepted and recorded. I am speaking as somebody who is Chief of Staff to an Attorney General. I am telling you, it is not that simple to get authorization from the FISA court. It's not that simple to be tapping into phone calls and recording phone calls, particularly of private citizens. And so the question is, how many of Michael Flynn's phone calls to various foreign leaders were intercepted by the Obama administration and recorded by the Obama administration? How many phone calls by Donald Trump, if any, have been intercepted by the Obama administration and recorded by the Obama administration? And all the other transition officials involved in foreign policy and national security and defense policy. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the real scandal, because the fact of the matter is, despite an enormously lengthy piece by the New York Times, even they have to confess, there is no evidence right now whatsoever that Michael Flynn broke the law, that Michael Flynn asked the Russians to do anything, that Michael Flynn promised anything to the Russians about the measly, pathetic, barely sanctions that Obama put in place. That's the fact. So the question is today, ladies and gentlemen, how many of these intercepts are there? How many phone records are there? What did Barack Obama know and when did he know it? What did his attorney general, Loretta Lynch, know and when did she know it? What did the acting attorney general, Yates, what did she know and when did she know it? And as a matter of fact, ladies and gentlemen, was the information collected by the Obama administration prior to the, the inauguration of President Donald Trump, was any of that shared with members of Congress? Because this sure as hell looks awfully orchestrated to me. Back live, you can see the train of thought, the logical argument, how I'm approaching it. There's still a lot of questions there that need to be answered. But you have to admit, that's February 15, 2017, with almost no information. We got awfully close, didn't we? Awfully close. And as I say, after that, the headlines started to blare at the Hill and other places. Levin to Obama. What did Barack Obama know and when did he know it? And I've been consistent in this. And you will not find anybody who has been focused on this earlier than I. Because I understand how this process works. And they still need to get access to the daily presidential briefing. That covers this period of time. To find out exactly what Obama knew. And I'm going to tell you something. Obama knew. Obama knew. I'll tell you why I think Obama knew, in addition to the other hundred reasons I've given over the course of the last 12 months, when we return. Mark Levin. I know Obama knew because the FBI director would have told him. The attorney general would have told him. His national security director would have told him. His deputy national security director would have told him. Valerie Jarrett, his, uh, his consigliere, would have told him. And how else did he know? Because it was in the newspapers. Now, there's another piece of information that just came out and people are not really reading it properly so stick with me 
By the way, this is why I'm so proud of all of you out there. I'm proud of this program. I'm proud of all of our great affiliates who stick with us. I'm proud of our satellite radio listeners. I'm proud of the fact that many of you go online on digital and you download the program through Mark Levin app, iHeartRadio app, or through your iPod. Millions and millions and millions of listeners on all platforms. This is where the Tea Party met early on right here with liberty and tyranny. This is where the Convention of States, Article 5, meets right here. This is where we decided we had enough of John Boehner and it was time for him to go right here. This is where we decided we needed to elect Mike Lee and Rand Paul and at the time Rubio and at the time Ted Cruz. Right here. These decisions were made by you and me right here. We're the ones who understood right here behind this microphone, you and me, what was taking place long before anybody else, February, March. And now the echo chamber and now the... The backbenchers. And that's good. They're all in. And they need to all be in. This is where we continue to advance the cause of conservative principles and constitutionalism. And fiscal responsibility. Right here, behind this microphone. All of us. And we live the rest in the dust. And that's a good thing. But take a look at this. Susan Rice sent an email to her inaugural day herself. Memorializing a chat between Obama and Comey on Russiagate. And everybody's focused, and they ought to be focused, on this phrase where she says twice, by the book. President Obama began the conversation about Russia, stressing his continued commitment to ensuring that every aspect of this issue is handled by the intelligence and law enforcement communities by the book. And everybody's rightly saying, well, don't keep writing that to yourself to create a false contemporaneous record unless you're not doing something by the book. But there's other information in this short email that's being overlooked. The president asked Comey to inform him, that's Obama, if anything changes in the next few weeks that should affect how we share classified information with the incoming team. Comey said he would. That is the marquee in the email, not by the book. The president, meaning Obama, said Comey to inform him if anything changes in the next few weeks that should affect how we share classified information with the incoming team, Comey said he would. This suggests to me, at least it certainly gives the patina of evidence, that they were concerned about sharing classified information with the incoming team because the incoming team was under investigation, you see because of its supposed ties to the Russians, you see. Based on the dossier, you see. This is a damning email. Not just because of the by-the-book comment that's in here twice, but because of what I just said, the last sentences, the two last sentences in the email. Obama knew. Of course he knew. How could he not know? The New York Times knew. McClatchy knew. Heat Street knew. I knew. February 15th. March 2nd. March 5th. March 6th. You knew. We talked about it. Lindsey Graham was on the Fox News channel. I guess it was last evening, right, Rich? Today. He's a little slow, 
And here's what he had to say. Cut three, go. So what I'm worried about is this an effort by the president to basically get himself on the record through Susan Rice to make sure that from his point of view, everything was done by the book. The question is, did the president know anything about the FISA warrant application? Did Susan Rice know that the warrant application uh, included a dossier uh, from Mr. Steele when he was on the payroll of the Democratic Party? Well, let's just slow right there. Did the president know anything about the FISA warrant application? February 15th, what I said resonated throughout conservative media, throughout pseudo-conservative media, throughout nationalist populist media. Headline, big font headline in the Hill newspaper. Levin on Flynn intercepts. What did Obama know and when did he know it? It's still the issue today, ladies and gentlemen, this massive cover-up. And I want to thank my colleagues in this business. You finally got it. So do repeat it. This massive cover-up, this massive resistance, what's going on in the entrenched bureaucracy is obviously intended to protect Hillary, but it's really focused on protecting Obama. He was the philosopher king. He was the maestro behind all of it. Not necessarily every aspect in the weeds, but he knew it, he knew it was taking place. I'll be back. Listening to Denali, the great one. The great one. And you can call in now, 877-381-3811. You know, Mr. Producer is my buddy, Rich Cementa. Open your microphone. I've been on the air 15, almost 16 years now, right? Correct, yep, 16. Have you been with me since day one? Almost, right? Day one from the 6 o'clock slot. Day one when I started in the 6 o'clock slot. And throughout the syndication period. And we were talking today, and I was talking to my Levin TV guys. Isn't it amazing how one year changes where we were pursuing these things, addressing these things, coming under brutal attack from all these big media platforms, and we got almost nobody standing up and defending us, and now everybody's in on it. But it is amazing right now, everybody, everybody's in, and this is a good thing. But I just want you, the audience, to understand how this works, both what's been taking place in the government and what takes place in radio, and quite frankly, TV, too. It's a fascinating thing to sit back. I take a lot of gratification in this. I really do. A lot of satisfaction. And it's important. Because in order to get to the bottom of this, everybody has to be pushing. But it was extraordinarily lonely. I mean, I had family members saying to me, you're going to be okay? So I'm going to be great. I said, because I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm saying. I know what I see. I mean, to have Lindsey Graham now today say, or it may have been yesterday or today, you know, the question now is, did Obama know about the FISIS? Of course he did, you idiot. Of course he did. Why wouldn't he know about them? Why would they keep it from him? Everybody else knew about it in the senior levels of the government. Incredible to me that you have a chairman of a subcommittee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, who's asking such a stupid question. Anyway, I think this is very important. 
And I want to take a few of your calls on this subject. Let us go to Sean, Waconia, Minnesota, on XM Satellite. How are you? Hello, Mark. How are you? Very well, thank you. Well, good. I'm not going to take much of your time. It's it's really nice talking with you. I listen to you uh, all the time. But Thank you. I just want to tell you that you're a great investigator. There is so much more to this story than meets the eye. There always has been. And there's so many people in the government that are on the take on this story from, you know, Barack Obama all the way down. And I also think... I, I don't think they're on the take. I think they're driven ideologically. Well, that's that's probably true, but but we don't really know what's who's what's changed. I mean, Obama's going to be an extraordinarily wealthy man. I don't think this has anything to do with uh, getting wealthy. I think this has everything to do with his his ideological drive and his desire, and quite frankly, his party's desire to hold power uh, uh, uninterrupted by uh, occasional Republican victories. Yep, I. I and, and keep something else in mind, Sean. Now that you mention this, this triggers a thought. By not electing Hillary Clinton, now this stuff begins to unravel, doesn't it? It does, and it has been. It's the house of cards. And I guess what I wanted to say to you, and, I won't, and I'll hang up here, but I, I think Obama has pulled off the biggest political coup in American history. And I also think Hillary Clinton has done the same. And people have to remember that they were pupils of Saul Alinsky, and Solomonsky was in the mafia with Al Capone and, and Nitschke. He and did work with them, didn't he? Yeah, and, you know, um, people also have to remember that Barack Obama was a community organizer, and so was Solomonsky, and that's what they do. They lie and lie and lie about people until they believe it, and then they, they uh, extort, they intimidate, and they shake them down. And I think that's what's happened with this dossier, with this Russian story. And I think the media has run with it, and I think it's totally unfair to Trump. I mean, he's not perfect. But I I just think that people ought to look into that more. And I think he's a community organizer from the top on down, and I think people ought to be aware of that and what, and what he did with that, and the same with uh, Hillary. And I guess with that, I and, and just you know keep doing what you're doing because I think it's great, and I think the American people deserve to know that, what we have in our government and what we had in the past in our government. And it's right, about time that we know about it. So. All right, my friend. I appreciate your call. That's Sean from Minnesota. Minnesota. Weston. Narberth. Excuse me. Northberth, Pennsylvania. I know exactly where that is. Great WNTP. Go. Correct. Yes, I was listening to you uh, on the fan up in, or 660 up in New York when I was living up there uh, early 2000. No, 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 no. no. So, WABC. WABC. I'm sorry. Yes, you're yes. right. Uh, WABC. But and listen, 770, my, my, baby. Yes, my comments fall right in line with uh, the the uh, Lindsey Graham uh, take that you had there. The Republicans, uh, Lindsey's playing dumb uh, because there's many on the Republican side who are afraid of exposing what this has been. Uh, the fact that we've had this level of lawlessness and corruption by our federal government. Uh, the Republicans were there. They probably had sneaky suspicions of it going on while Obama was still in office. But for the last I don't year, think I mean, so. I, I honestly think these people are so clueless. Uh, I think... 
and they're so desperate to hold on to even a minority position as long as they're in a position of power. They're so desperate um, to use budget bills to take care of the the racing families in Kentucky and this group over here and the sugar guys over there. Uh, the, the Republicans are mostly crony capitalists. They're not really capitalists. And the Democrats are hardcore socialists. The Democrats are also appeasers when it comes to foreign policy. But they're all progressives. I mean, they're largely all progressives now. Are you there? Oh, Mark? Yep, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. So, Well, I mean, look at a guy, Admiral Rogers, for instance. Uh, he tips Trump off to the fact that he's being wiretapped. I mean, don't you think that he tipped – what, what I guess what I'm trying to say is I think the Republicans are terrified of having to expose the first African-American president as being entirely lawless and corrupt. No, I, I honestly don't. I don't think so. <clears throat> I, know, I understand that's the – sort of the, uh, the, the mythology out there, and maybe when he was president they were. I mean, they take good shots at him. Uh, I just think the Republicans, first of all, they don't like Trump. And secondly, they're incompetent boobs. All right, anyway, thank you, Weston. I appreciate your call. Let us go to Nick. Columbus, Ohio, Sirius Satellite, go. Okay, I want to get right to the point here. Glad to be on the show with you. But uh, I just want to talk about one of the main weapons that the left uses and what they, yeah, that is is targeting the youth of America, especially in the public schools where all they listen to is mainstream media and the teachers are corrupt and their parents are corrupt. And I've noticed it as a high, school, uh, high schooler that all these freshmen coming in from public schools will basically just regurgitate what they hear from CNN and from the from the corrupt teachers. Well, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me ask you something. To call a call screener, you wanted to talk about FISA. Um, yeah, but uh, they, they said you might be able to tie it in with it. So. No, you go ahead. You're the caller. Okay, thank you. Um, but it's just sickening to hear um, what we talk about because, thank heaven. Right, so are, are you saying then that things that we talk about here as an example never see the light of day in these classrooms? Exactly, because they're consumed by mainstream media. and They're just brainwashed by these people, and it's sickening. It just mm-hmm. it literally you will and slap the sense in them because all they hear is this mainstream media from CNN that their parents watch and they just brainwash them and regurgitating all this propaganda that they hear and it's sickening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid that's true and I've said a, f- a few times what we need to do, Nick. We need to really figure out this education issue. Uh, public schools, uh, which are really government schools as well as colleges and universities. I don't know how much longer this country can survive with the brainwashing that goes on and at least the lack of uh, competition of ideas, the uh, the fake history that's taught, the hate America history that's taught. In other words, all of America's scabs and none of America's greatness. Hmm. So, Nick, I'm going to send you a signed copy of Plunder and Deceit. So don't hang up, okay? Okay. You sound like a, How old are you, Nick? I'm 15. Wow. You are really, really smart. Thank you for I calling. Listen, Don't, I listen to ahead. this show a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Don't hang up. What a great young man. Joe, Chico, California, XM Satellite. We're bouncing from one part of the country to the next. Go. Yeah, hey, I was just calling. I was curious. You know, uh, we have the issues with the DOJ. We have the issues with the FBI. Who, if anyone, is 
available to bring charges. I mean, uh, nobody. Yeah, bingo, bingo, ding, 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 ding. Until they get a special counsel, I can assure you the FBI is not going to investigate itself, and the Justice Department's not going to investigate itself. And I know there's a lot of old buddies of mine who are former prosecutors. I can't have a special counsel. I'm not big on them either. I fought the independent counsel statute when Congress was trying to pass it. I fought it when it existed. I represented my former boss in Iran-Contra. I got it. But this is the specific kind of situation. It is unique and rare where you actually need a special counsel, somebody from the outside, to investigate the inside. Not to investigate collusion with Russia, chasing tells on that issue. Not to investigate basic criminal behavior that any assistant U.S. attorney can investigate. The problem here is that if you expect the director of the FBI and the deputy director of the FBI and the people at the Justice Department to say, yes, we're going to investigate ourselves, I don't believe it. Well, then who, uh, let me ask this question, who's going to be, who's going to uh, call for a special counsel? Can the president do it? I don't understand. Anybody can call for a special counsel, including a homeless man. What you're asking, I think, is who's going to appoint one. Isn't that your question? Yes, sir. Well, then Jeff Sessions needs to appoint one. And I said last week, I've known Jeff for 30 years, and I'm strongly supportive of him. But in this, I really don't get it. If there's not a basis for a special counsel here, how in the world does Rosenstein justify Mueller? This is quintessential circumstance where you need somebody from the outside. And I I, look, I'm not 100% comfortable with it, but... Uh, from a systemic point of view, there's no alternative. From an institutional point of view, there's simply no alternative. All right, my friend, thank you. We'll be right back. Mark Lovin. You know, it doesn't take much for grocery store shelves to go from fully stocked to completely bare. Please don't wait for an emergency to happen. Become a victim of chaos. Hurricanes, fires, earthquakes, tornadoes, floods. I have relatives who learned the hard way last fall with Hurricane Irma. Make sure you have an adequate food storage supply and use My Patriot Supply. These are great folks that have helped me plan for an emergency too. And you can get started this week for as little as 10 bucks. Make sure each person in your household has a 72-hour emergency food kit for My Patriot Supply. And boy, will it give you peace of mind, too. Yeah, only $10 each. You get three days of emergency food. Limit four, because this is an incredibly low price. Order now. Here's the number. 800-294-2325. 800-294-2325. Or use this special website, preparewithmark.com, preparewithmark.com. The food is actually delicious. It lasts 25 years in storage. $10 kits this week only, 800-294-2325, or preparewithmark.com. Again, 800-294-2325, or preparewithmark.com. All details are on the website, preparewithmark.com. Com. All right. I understand all these dates get confusing after a while, and 
people claiming they were first or second or fifth and quoting themselves and citing themselves. My goal is not to create confusion. My goal is not competition. My goal is to systematically, logically, rationally lay out these things, especially when I feel they're occurring. And so that's why we're five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten steps ahead. It's important to really analyze these things, not just read news stories, not just read websites, and comment or bluster about it. It's really important to try and dig in. Now, I understand you expose yourself to attacks when you do that. So what? Big deal. Andy, northern New Jersey, XM Satellite, go. How you go doing ahead, Andy. Marca? Good, how are you, sir? How you doing? Good, good. Calling in to just uh, talk about this Pfizer war. And I don't know if there's ever going to be any kind of... Uh, uh, crimes, you know, brought about and see if anybody's ever going to get charged, put in jail. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see the whole lot of them put away. You know, um, the problem is the deep state. You know, they're they're out there, and it's really entrenched. And you know what, Andy, what the deep state is, and people use the deep state in the swamp, it's the administrative state. Um, it's the administrative state, the fourth branch of government that, you and I and everybody in this audience have been talking about now for for over a decade. This massive administrative state, and you know what, Andy, it doesn't just exist in this context. It exists in housing. It exists in agriculture. It exists in energy. It exists at the EPA. It exists at the FDA. And they have as their purpose to control the the subject matter, to control the, the, the environment, to control the areas that have been assigned to their departments, their agencies, their offices, their divisions, and their units. And that's what's taking place. And they don't want to be disrupted. They don't want any cuts to their budget. They don't want any cuts to their personnel level. They don't want any name changes on their doors. They don't want any of that. Then they put their 20, 25 years in, they're done, and they want to double dip. They do not want to be. Go ahead. And the problem with that is, too, is that some of these people are so well entrenched and they can't, they basically can't get fired, right? They're in these positions. Well, you can. The way to fire them is to slash the federal budget. Ah, true. Slash the federal budget. And yet Trump and the Republicans are massively increasing the federal budget. And this is what very, very, uh, is very, very frustrating and annoying to me, which is you hear people uh, on TV, I suppose on radio and writing about, well, I'm not a fiscal concern. Well, these purists, well, this, why should we cut? I mean, what's the debt? What's the big deal? The budget is funding the progressive movement. The budget is funding the departments and agencies. If you want to reduce their power, reduce their number, you have to cut the budget. They just massively increased it. Absolutely. And then I have to hear these lectures. Well, the deep state. Well, the swamp. The swamp won. The swamp won. The Republicans are the swamp. The president just signed their budget. I don't know, Mark. You don't understand. I understand very well. Go ahead, Andy. I do. I do too, man. I just keep fighting the fight. I'm trying to do the best I can to educate people out here in Jersey and 
and you know, I keep educating myself. I go to meetings that uh, that you know, John Birch Society, things like that, and try to. You don't want to go to the John Birch Society. Go to the Convention of States. Find where you're. In my humble opinion, find where the Convention of States is in your community, and they're there. They're all over New Jersey, and join them. So screw the John Birch Society. They have a whole different agenda, agenda, and they're trying to ups, uh, ups, uh, obstruct our uh, our efforts to uh, revitalize the Constitution. They're a bunch of quacks, in my humble opinion. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I shall return. Broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877 877-381-3811. We're going to get into immigration in a moment. It's a big issue, and we need to address it. We need to stay on it. Benjamin Netanyahu is one of the great leaders in the world. And he's led his country through an extraordinarily different, difficult period when Barack Obama was president, and Barack Obama was funding the enemies of the United States and Israel. And then, of course... President Trump was elected, and President Trump has been one of the best friends Israel has ever had as President of the United States. Recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and he's committed to moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem before the end of the year, which he campaigned on. The President did not campaign on massive amnesty, but he did campaign on this, and he has kept true to his word. And it's taken a lot of guts. Because the State Department, the Defense Department, most in the NSC, I am sure, opposed it. As did Democrats throughout Washington and some feckless Republicans. I am gravely concerned about the leftist forces in Israel, as I am about the leftist forces in this country and all over the world. Trying to take out one of the great leaders and one of the great prime ministers of Israel. He's been prime minister for a total of his different terms of about nine years or so. Israel is facing an enormous threat. We talked about this the other day. Iran, Hezbollah, Syria, Russia, Hamas, Fatah, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, on and on and on. And spreading virulent anti-Semitism in Europe. And we know what Europe's capable of. It wasn't that long ago, was it? And quite frankly, I'll say it. I'll clear the past so the backbenchers can repeat it. Within the Democrat Party, growing anti-Semitism. As a matter of fact, the more open immigration we have, the more refugees we have the more this is becoming apparent, including in our colleges and universities. This BDS movement, which is intended to choke off little Israel from commerce in order to destroy it. 
the lack of free speech on our college campuses, um, Palestinian front groups on our college campuses, shutting down Hillel and other efforts, uh, organizations trying to speak on our college campuses. It's going on right under our noses. It's interesting, when the FBI comes out with its statistics, even though this Hamas front group, in my opinion, CARE, well, that's who gave it life, uh, almost seems to celebrate the fact that they claim uh, that Muslims face more uh, hate crimes and so forth in this country than any other group. Of course, that's not true. Jews do. And why is that? Why is that getting worse? Well, because of open borders, I believe. Because of our immigration policies, I believe. But beside the point. Over in Israel, they seek the police. They have an odd government in Israel, in my humble opinion, set up by the socialists. This whole bizarre, it's not just a parliamentary system, it is a radical parliamentary system where you're broken down into tiny little faction parties, and even if you win an overwhelming election, it's very, very difficult to keep your coalition. And so you create instability. You create it in Italy, you create it in other places too. So the Israeli police do this investigation, and they're entrenched too. Think about the senior levels of our FBI. And they put out a statement that they have sufficient evidence against the Prime Minister in two cases they're investigating him for, for the offense of accepting bribes, fraud, and breach of trust. Sounds very serious, doesn't it? And they claim it amounts to about $283,000 in lavish gifts and bribes. Case 1000 alleges that Netanyahu accepted gifts from wealthy patrons returned for advancing their interests. So apparently... He would share cigars, or somebody would bring him a box of cigars, and he would smoke the cigars, or a bottle of wine, things like that. We're not talking about, you know, Mercedes-Benz type things, or condominiums, or expensive jewelry, or, or cash under the table, none of that stuff. This is penny ante Mickey Mouse crap. Then so-called case 2000, meaning the second case, he's accused of striking a deal, listen to this, with Israel's second largest newspaper, to provide him with positive coverage in return for damaging the reputation of another newspaper. Now what kind of nonsense is this? What kind of idiocy is this? This case 1000 names two wealthy businessmen, as I read this from ABC News, an Israeli Hollywood producer and an Australian businessman. And the police say they have evidence for accepting bribes, fraud, and breach of trust. But what is it? What is it? Netanyahu blasted all this on TV tonight. He said, I've not known a day in office without vicious allegations against me and my family. Fifteen investigations have been launched against me. I know the truth this time as well. It will end in nothing. Nothing will divert me from my commitment to the good of the nation. I feel a deep commitment to continue to lead the people. And last week he was on Facebook criticizing the the, uh, police investigation, calling it ludicrous. And he also attacked the credibility of the investigation after Israel police chief Roni Ashich 
insinuated Netanyahu may have hired private investigators to follow those involved in the investigation. Now, Tuesday's recommendations, today's Tuesday, ABC says they're just that, recommendations. And while they're damaging politically, they'll certainly fuel calls for the Prime Minister to step down. The real decision to charge the Prime Minister lies with Israel's Attorney General. Only a conviction with the charge of moral turpitude would legally force Netanyahu to step down. So what the police are trying to do is force the Attorney General's hand and have Netanyahu prosecuted. Now, in addition to the ludicrousness of this, given what he's accused of, despite the the horrific sounding terms and so forth. What do you think Robert Mueller thinks when he reads this? Wow. If they can do it, I think we can do it too. I mean, after all, we're the United States. We're not this tiny little country, Israel. What do you think Iran's thinking tonight? And Hezbollah and Hamas and Fatah and all the other sickos. What do you think they're thinking tonight? Wow. Prime Minister's attention is diverted. He's weakened. He's weakened. And yet within Israel, like within the United States, there are radical left-wing forces that would rather destroy Netanyahu than defend Israel. That's right, I said it. And same in our own country. Same in our own country. Where we have to try and persuade the Democrats by legalizing millions of illegal aliens and family members to secure our border against terrorists, criminals, and other other people who come across the border. Including people who behave themselves. It's not their country. And so even after what took place with Iran on Sunday, even after knowing that war is brewing, and it may be sooner than people think, involving Israel and Iran and the rest of them. The deep state, as we say, this time in Israel. What we mean by this, of course, is the leftist, entrenched institutions. They're focused on taking out one of the greatest leaders in the world and one of the greatest leaders Israel's ever had. And let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. The media in Israel, much of it, is much like the media in our own country. Left-wing, pro-left-wing parties, pushing gossip and rumor and all the rest. Gossip and rumor and all the rest. But you're going to charge the prime minister... With favoring one newspaper over another? Supporting one newspaper and denouncing another? That's a bribe? In no country is that a bribe. And it is ludicrous. You know by now, you've really got to peel the onion to see what's going on before you buy what the media say. I don't care... If it's in America or in Israel, the left-wing media, media, these are goon squads. They know they are. They won't admit it. They know they are. Just as the media in this country and the Democrats are involved in a silent coup against our president. 
And you know damn well they are. They're doing it every single day. And then when you call out on it, they go, Whoa, what? What do you mean? What are you, not a coup? And then, hey, 25th Amendment. Hey, impeachment. Hey, he's deranged. Hey, he's mentally ill. Hey, he's obstructed justice. Hey, he's colluded with the Russians. Hey, you're trying to coup d'etat. What are you, not? Of course we're not. Same thing goes on in Israel. He smokes cigars? Really? And who? A billionaire? Millionaire? Gave him cigars? He had wine? He had some... He did what? Oh, my Lord. We've never seen anything like this. He favored one newspaper that favored him against one newspaper that didn't favor him? Oh, my Lord. That's a bribe, too. Must be. Because our police say so. What a grotesque miscarriage of justice. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Why is the Logan Act coming up again? Didn't we deal with that a year ago, too? Is my memory right, Rich? Yes, eight months ago. Now, we definitely dealt with that. That was another allegation out of the administration, the Logan Act. Why are we recycling this stuff? I'm not trying to be hostile to anybody. I, I don't understand why we're recycling this stuff. We knew what Comey told Congress two and a half months ago. Brett Baird told Catherine Herridge, who reported it on December 1st, 2017. We talked about it. The Logan Act. We know they tried to manufacture arguments under the Logan Act, and we talked about that. Must be a slow news day or something. I don't know. Let's take a call, shall we? Yes, we can. Chris, Sonoma, California, XM Satellite, go. Hey, Mark, how are you, sir? Good, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Boy, you got me so fired up with your last thing, I... I almost forgot what I called about, but I, I just wanted to say, you know, Obama, the moment he got in the presidency, he hit the ground running, it just infiltrating every bureaucracy he could with his minions. And we, I mean, how many years could it possibly take to get them all out? It not, can't be done in four. Well, how do you get them out other than slashing budgets to these departments and agencies? You can't. You can't go in there and individually remove people for multiple reasons. They're part of the civil service. Many of them are members of union, unions, and you can't find them. And you can't fire people in the bureaucracy simply because of their political views, and most of them have now squirreled into the bureaucracy. So the way you can curtail this is by curtailing the size of government. And they won't do it. So listen to me, this is important. Any senator or congressman who voted for this budget, they support, they funded, they gave sustenance to this massive administrative state. Call it the swamp, call it whatever you want. They fed it. It's going to get bigger, not smaller. And so that was a disaster. Now they're going to let in, not let in, they're going to legalize multi-millions of people who are here, who are foreigners, and their family members, to the tune of 11 million when you're done adding it up. Let me ask you a question, sir. When our great Congress is done, and we're busy making America great again, do you think the Republicans can win many presidencies after this? Well, that's just it. I'm, I'm pretty uh, blown away that, that this is where we've ended up because we're hoping... When the president was running in the primaries, did he say he wanted to make uh, 
millions of illegal aliens, uh, citizens. Did he say that? Did he ever say that? No, he promised us a wall. Right. I don't believe he ever said he wanted uh, citizenship for illegal aliens. I mean, that would have been Jeb Bush. That would have been Kasich. That would have been others. wasn't him. Notice how Jeb Bush and Kasich aren't saying a damn thing right now. Have you noticed that? Oh, yeah, no, they're quiet. All right, my friend, thank you for your call. We're going to get into this, how chain migration will create a permanent Democrat majority by Daniel Horowitz at Conservative Review. Uh, maybe I'll jump into that after the bottom of the hour. Chris, Winchester, Virginia, the great WMAL, go. Hi, Mark, how are you doing tonight? All right, how are you, sir? I'm doing pretty well. Um, yeah, I just wanted to talk to you about uh, the Israel and the Netanyahu uh, case that you know I, I think there's a lot more there than than what you're leading to there's um, two, uh, supposedly two hundred and eighty thousand dollars worth of champagne and cigars I, I just read it's not two hundred and eighty thousand dollars worth of champagne and cigars and the allegations <coughs> have to be addressed so you really need to be careful about stuff like this it's like the Flynn case or the Manafort case or what have you Let me explain something when a president or a prime minister or whatever, the head of state meets with somebody else, they bring them gifts. You're not allowed to take all the gifts, but there's some things that are acceptable. You sit down, you have a meal, fine. You sit down, you have an expensive cigar, two, three, fine. Guy brings a bottle of wine, fine. You do this over the course of many, many years, and somebody says, whoa, we have $283,000 worth of stuff. You don't know that to be true. Well, I'm just doing what the uh, what the media reports are saying. No, you're doing what the police have told the media. And you know, the police have have in Israel uh, have always been shown to be nonpartisan. We're not talking about. No, they haven't. We're not. T listen, you don't even know what you're talking about. Why are you doing this? We're not talking about the cop on the beat. We're talking about the usual high-level bureaucratic police who are hostile and have been to Netanyahu. And you have no idea about that. I, I think Netanyahu has been a great leader, but that does not change. But that has nothing to do with anything I'm saying. To be investigated. He's being investigated. He's been endlessly investigated. And the, but what are you bringing to the table that I didn't already read out of the article? And the police have said criminal charges should be brought up. All right, thanks for your call. I already said that. I already said that. And the Justice Department said criminal charges should be brought against ex-Senator Ted Stevens. And they were wrong. And they were punished. And he died in an airplane crash. And I could go on and on and on. I'm really shocked that callers to this program, any caller to this program at this point would say, well, this one said, so that's good enough. No, it's not good enough. This is nonsense. Absolute not adding up the cost of cigars or wine or whatever it is. Or that he sides for one newspaper against another? That's a bribe? On the straight and narrow path, you have a guide. Mark Levin. Call him now at 877-381-3811. You know, if you're going to call here and just repeat 
what was said to the media and what the media said. What is the point of a call like that? I don't even understand. By the way, you know what March 7th is, Mr. Producer? It's my second year anniversary on Levin TV. So we're going to do something special. I hope you'll join us. There's millions of you out there. In honor of that date, March 7th, we've set up $20 off for new Levin TV customers with promo code LEVIN2, L-E-V-I-N-2. So go to CRTV.com or call 844-LEVIN-TV. That's my preference. Call L-E-V-I-N, 844-L-E-V-I-N-TV. Our wonderful customer service folks are there, and they are great. Tell them promo code LEVIN2, LEVIN2, and you'll get $20 off. That's 20%. Uh, of the annual membership. And it's usually $99. For you, it'll be $79. Not only that, you get the first week free so you can watch it and see if you like it. I know you're going to like it. I'm not allowed to tell you how many subscriptions we have right now. You would be shocked at how significant this platform has become. It started out as Levin TV, one program. We grew it into a small network, CRTV. And, uh, you know, we put a lot of effort into it. Our, our technology is cutting edge. Our studios are magnificent. But more than all that is the content. We now have wonderful people working for this network. You've got my show, Levin TV. You've got the great Steven Crowder, and he's terrific. And Michelle Malkin, and she's terrific. And I probably shouldn't start down this line because I'm going to forget people. Dan Bongino, my man. Stephen Dace, my man, uh, and all kinds of other people, wonderful people. Andrew Wilkow. Andrew Wilkow got his first job subbing for me on Sundays on WABC. Good guy. Solid. And there are others. Uh, uh, get off my lawn. You got that guy. Number of people. So you should check it out. Check it out. You call 844-LEVIN-TV and say LEVIN2. Promo code LEVIN2. Get 20 bucks off. You'll be set. You can give it as a gift. Give it as a Valentine's gift. But give it as a gift, period. Now, Valentine's is tomorrow. And you know what today is? I told you yesterday. I've given you a hint. Today is my mother's birthday. My wonderful, wonderful mother. Mothers are special, aren't they? I watch my daughter and her husband, my son-in-law. I watch them raising my two grandkids, my granddaughter and my grandson. Just so special, so beautiful. And uh, my mother, I think of all the things she did for us in the family, just as you think of your mother. Just special. And she was always there. She worked for a living. She didn't need to be told she had equal rights. She didn't need to be told she should get equal pay. She despised feminists. She and my dad started small businesses. They weren't on anybody's payroll. Any pension they had, they saved for. Any health care they had, they saved for. Anything they had, they earned. And that's what they passed on to their children. And that's what their parents passed on to them. 
as second, third generation immigrants. We never talked about taking anything from the government. Not unemployment, not welfare, not food stamps, not this program, that program. They wouldn't even know where to go to sign up for a program. But it was beneath them. There was no way they would ever do it. And let me tell you something. There were some hard weeks. Some very tough weeks, particularly when they were in the retail business and had a small store outside of Philadelphia. When the economy tanks, small brick-and-mortar stores, mom-and-pop stores, they suffer. Particularly when you're selling things that don't, that aren't absolute necessities. Like some furniture or lamps or artwork and things of that sort. And we go to the store often on the weekends and help out, you know, as best we could. Mostly I got in the way. But it was quite a remarkable upbringing. Quite a remarkable upbringing. And I'm sure my mother's story, my father's story is not that different than yours. They made sure there was breakfast. Lunch, dinner, they paid all the bills, excuse, all the bills. They asked for nothing from the government except to get out of their way. Nothing. Nothing. They didn't get on Medicaid. I think back now, when I was a teenager... Young teenager and then an older teenager, I think back now, there was never a debate about illegal immigration. It was known to be wrong. There was never a debate about whether you should secure the border. It was known you ought to secure the border. There was never a debate on whether or not people who come in here illegally should get to stay because of their age. It didn't even enter our psyche. It wasn't even discussed because it was understood in America. No. Pretty clear. Very clear. Pensions. Early on, my there were there was no such thing as an IRA. No such thing as an IRA. Nothing. You either put money away or you didn't put money away. Now, I know there's a lot of people out there who had pensions, who worked on assembly line. Fine. There's a lot who did not. My parents were very young. And when they, when they were very young, they had three boys. They started a nursery school, and in the summer, it was a day camp. They didn't have two or three months to take off with pay. They didn't have a 2 or 3 or 8% increase every year. Step increases, seniority increases. <coughs> there was no significant federal minimum wage that they could pay themselves. I remember the day camp, how wonderful it was. They'd make hot food for lunch. People would walk around with trays, with sandwiches, for snacks. My dad worked like a dog. He cut the lawn himself at this camp, which was several acres. I remember before camp would open, how he would drain the pools, clean them, scrape the paint out of the bottom of the pools, repaint repaint the pools. I still have a little bit of this flu I'm trying to kick. How he made half of the 
you know, the recess equipment and so forth that kids played on, maintained it. How he would drive kids, he'd pick them up from their homes, often in Philadelphia, row homes, and go to the suburbs. Two, three hours every morning, two, three hours every evening, taking them home in a station wagon. I think it's probably all illegal today. So he was effectively a bus driver, a maintenance man, an entrepreneur. I remember the fence that surrounded the property, how that had to be painted every single year. My father and my grandfather were out there every weekend. We'd be going out there cutting the lawn. And all through, they had a great attitude. My dad would take us to the golf range or the Dairy Queen. Or a steak sandwich place in a place called Flowertown, Pennsylvania, right next to Springfield in Erdenheim, right outside of Philadelphia. I loved it. It was called Cisco. I think it's still there. My mother would be in charge of the curriculum. She had an education degree, among other things, for the nursery school. There were no demands. The public school should have full day kindergarten. Because we're working people and we need full day kindergarten. What's this half day kindergarten stuff? No. Nobody believed in that. And so they had this nursery school during the school months. I remember the mimeograph machine. I remember hearing it at night when we were going to sleep. They would work day in and day out. They would print these menus, the food menus, the activities menus. Get construction paper, get everything they needed to get. As my mother would have one, would have two other teachers with it for the nursery school. We had a kitchen. We got by. He'd call them lower middle class or slightly lower at the point, at that point, if we want to use Marxist nomenclature. And we would sleep in one end of the building and the school was right there, there were basically two classrooms and a kitchen in between. And that's where we lived originally as little babies. And it was great. I remember in camp in the back, we'd have archery. It wasn't a big area. The police station was right behind us. But there was a fence up and we'd have archery or we'd have a BB gun, you know, rifles, uh, Daisy rifles, target practice. I remember they, they would take the, the camp. We would all go on uh, hikes for Washington. Um, take us bowling once a week. Just, and, of course, we played softball. Couldn't play hardball because there wasn't a big enough field. But I never said this publicly. I'll say it now. I always tried to hit the ball as far as I could to hit the building. Try my dad nuts. But that's what we did. I'm telling you all these things because it's an America that I miss very much. And I'm telling you all these things because I'm an enormously lucky 60-year-old man to have the parents that I had and my sweet, beautiful mother. Just like most of you and your mother. 
just like my beautiful wife Julie and her mother Sylvia. And her wonderful father who's no longer with us, Leo. All right. Here's some exciting news. Simply Safe is a company that's been around for many years. They've transformed into the fastest growing home security company in the nation. Now they protect over 2 million people. Well, they just released their brand new home security system, the all new Simply Safe. This system has been completely rebuilt and redesigned. They've added new safeguards to protect against power outages, downed Wi-Fi, cut landlines, bats, hammers, everything in between. The all-new Simply Safe was redesigned to be practically invisible, with powerful sensors so small you'll hardly notice them. You know who will notice them? Intruders. Simply Safe spent years building their system. They added very, very significant technology, but you still get the same fair and honest price. 24/7 professional protection for only $15 a month. And with Simply Safe, there are no long-term contracts. This new system is smaller, faster, stronger than anything they've built before. But supply truly is very limited. Go to simplysafemark.com right now to order your system. That's simplysafemark.com. Protect your family and your home right now. Start today. That's simplysafemark.com. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. You know, I'll tell you one other little story. Very little, but it's in my mind how tough my dad was, and he was very tough. You know, you know about his books, but he was a very tough man, very strong, very muscular. He came out of the army, he was a very young man. And he really grew up in the streets, pretty much. But he went to school, educated himself. But I, rem- <laughs> I remember there he was working in the, in the room where all the pool equipment was. And back then, there were pipes everywhere. I mean pipes, not the PCB type stuff and the rest of it. Uh, and, or whatever it's called. And I remember he pulled something, his hand went back, and he slashed the back of his hand, Mr. Producer. And the blood was gushing out. <laughs> and he took some dirty rag, he put it on, and he said, let's go. He goes into the car, he drives to the doctor's. Well, back then they were actually available. And the doctor said, you know, what, what, what do you need? Three, four, five stitches. He said, all right, go ahead and do it. He said, you need a shot or anything? He said, no, just do it. So there's a guy stitching up his hand. I'm going, holy man. And I'm like five years old, six years old. I also remember when we were in New York once. We were young. It was snowing. These are distant memories. I got a lot of them. I'm not going to waste your time with but this one in particular. And there were like three or four thugs across the street who threw a snowball and it hit my mother. Now that's something you don't do. And he was tough. He was very athletic. He was very fast. Next thing I know, he sprints across the street. He's got one of these guys up against the wall and the other with his hand around his neck. <laughs> and then they ran off, of course. But I'm, t- I'm telling you that, I'm cherry-picking. He was a very, he's a very nice, kind man and so forth and so on. But don't 
don't mess with his family. That's how we grew up. Higher education these days is insane. Students storm faculty offices and they riot when conservative speakers visit. Grievance lists, safe spaces, identity politics have turned higher education into something lower. But not everywhere. There's a place where students can debate ideas openly and honestly, where they pursue truth together with their professors in a respectful manner, where the students and faculty have integrity. Hillsdale College. Every student at Hillsdale lives by an honor code. It's not a list of do's and don'ts, but a simple pledge. And here it is. A Hillsdale College student is honorable in conduct, honest in word and deed, dutiful in study and service, and respectful of the rights of others. And through education, the student rises to self-government. That's it. Every freshman commits to follow that code. And throughout their Hillsdale education, their character is built to be true, beautiful, and good. Hillsdale graduates serve our country as teachers, doctors, stay-at-home moms, lawyers, journalists, and more. The excellent education they receive, coupled with that honor code, produces successful, excellent human beings. And you can learn more about this amazing place at levinforhillsdale.com. That's L-E-V-I-N for Hillsdale.com. All right, I went a little long there with family stuff, but when we get into the third hour... I want to get into this piece by Daniel Horowitz about how the Republicans are sowing the, uh, their defeats in the future through immigration. And I have to be honest, I'm really quite surprised at Tom Cotton that he's become one of the leaders of the gang of, what is it now, the gang of 50, the gang of 48, whatever, whatever number involved in this now. It's really quite appalling to me what the Republicans are doing, what the president is doing. This is a promise, obviously, he's decided not to keep. They keep talking about 1.8 million. It's kind of like the infrastructure spending. Went from 1 trillion to 1.5 trillion. Now we're going from 700,000 to 800,000 to 1.8 million, which in the end will be 11 million. And you can kiss a lot of these red states goodbye. I'll be right back. Underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number eight seven seven three eight one three eight one one eight seven seven three eight one three eight one one. Where did the show go? One hour left. Let's get down to it, folks. I want to thank all you affiliates out there. We'll be changing a few as time comes. We're just freshening things up. We always try to move up. We always try to move to better clearances and so forth because that's what the audience wants. And after all, we all work for you. Daniel Horowitz, a conservative review. The title of his piece is How Chain Migration Will Create a Permanent Democrat Majority. And he says, uh, look no further than California to understand how immigration done wrong can lead to a permanent majority of anti-life, pro-big government Democrats. The problem is that many other states are headed down the same path in a slower but inexorable trajectory. 
The same policies continues. If chain migration is not immediately halted, conservatives will find themselves in the minority nationwide, and no other issue will matter. Even though the Republican Party is not conservative, it is perceived as such and should take heed of the obvious warning signs. There's been a lot of focus in recent years on the number of green cards issued each year, but not on the number of people becoming citizens. Over the past 20 years, the U.S. has admitted roughly seven to 800,000 citizens into our voting population every year, with a few years reaching one million. Most of them have come from countries with dramatically different worldviews on issues such as guns, health care, and the size of government. Many deniers, with, many deniers within the GOP of the political problems of mass migration point to the past history in saying our previous large wave of immigration didn't create a permanent liberal majority. But that's because we're now dwarfing the previous great wave in numbers. Even during the highest naturalization years of the great wave of immigration, the great wave of immigration, we'd admitted anywhere from 100,000 to 250,000 new citizens to our electorate. In other words, even during the so-called great wave, when there were some years we admitted roughly as many annual immigrants as we do today, the era of immigration didn't result in as many people becoming American citizens. Some of this had to do with life expectancy, but either way, the wave didn't result in nearly as many naturalizations. And even the peak period of naturalization was not only much smaller, but only lasted for a short period of time. From 1996 to 2013, 12,609,000 new immigrants became American citizens. During the actual great wave, the number of naturalizations was still very low because it took time for them to go through the system and become citizens. But even if you take an equivalent 18-year period with the highest level of naturalizations, 1928 to 1945, just 3.8 million immigrants were naturalized. In other words, while the immigration wave of the modern era was 66% larger than the Great Wave, the naturalization, 329% greater now. Now, we don't even actualize the full extent of this wave of immigration, which is still growing. Let's not forget that because of the shutoff in the 20s, that is, a period of several decades for assimilation. The peak of naturalizations resulting from the Great Wave in the 20s and so forth coincided with a cool-off in new immigration. Contrast that to today's wave of naturalizations that are coinciding with an even larger wave of new admissions from similar areas. In other words, it's wave after wave after wave after wave. And that ensures a lack of assimilation into our constitutional values. Though immigrants have always voted for more liberal politicians. Enough of them were moving on to the second generation and becoming conservatives back then. The 30s and 40s, when the highest numbers of great wave immigrants were becoming voting members of society, was the lowest of our new immigration levels. But today, they have what they call reinforcements. Wave after wave after wave. And once the vote is granted, liberal after liberal after liberal vote. Let's explore the results of this wave as least it relates to, uh, relates to critical states electorally. And you'll see why it's so hard for Republicans to crack the blue firewall. He's looking at somewhat, at somewhat old data. 
And he's saying, and he has the statistics if you want to see, percentage of farm born by state. Percentage of farm born by state. California, 1980. Okay, let's look at it. 2016, farm born population in California. You know what it is, Mr. Producer? 27.2%. Florida, 20.6%. Arizona, 13.5%. Georgia, 10%. Illinois, 13.9%. Nevada, 20%. New Jersey, 22.5%. New York, 23%. Texas, 17%. Virginia, 12.3%. Washington State, 14%. In 2016, foreign-born. What is self-evident from this data is not only the danger of Republicans losing places like Texas, Florida, and Arizona. It's not only an explanation of why Republicans lost Virginia, Colorado, and Nevada. It also foreshadows what will happen in North Carolina, Georgia, and beyond. As late as 1990, the foreign-born population of Virginia was just 5%. It swelled to 11.4% in 2010, and it's still surging, as high as 12.3% in 2016. And while Virginia has experienced an influx of already American liberals over the past two decades, you know, from D.C. and Maryland, that would only explain why it's a marginal red state or even a purple state, not why it's become a blue state. Now, take a look at the numbers and recent trajectory from Georgia, of all places. Again, there's an influx of American white liberals from other states, as well as general increase in black turnout. But immigration is what is going to paint those states purple. Trump talks about shutting off migration 10 to 15 years from now, but the reality is that just the existing trajectory will paint the map blue. Not every state will become as blue as California, the lessons of the Golden State should be a stark warning for what happens with salad bowl rather than melting pot immigration. Orange County, California, was once the breadbasket of Republican dominance in California. As late as 1988, 1988, George H.W. Bush won more than twice as many votes as Democrat Michael Dukakis in Orange County, California. As late as 2004, when the border state was long gone, George W. Bush won it by 20 points. Now, Republicans narrowly carried it for the next two elections until they downright lost it by eight points in the last presidential election. What happened? Orange County, California. In 1980, 12.7% of the county was farm-born. In 2016, an estimated 30% of Orange County was farm-born. And 45.6% of his residents speak a foreign language at home. Orange, California, Orange County, California will now be blue forever. Although California lost forever, Texas and Florida are both independently vital to the GOP's relevance. Dallas County, Texas, for example, has gone from 5% farm-born in 1980 to 23% in 2016. Reagan won the county by 59.2% in 1980. Trump lost Dallas County by a whopping 26 points in 2016. Now, sure, some of this has to do with Trump's weakness with some college-educated, urban, suburban white voters, and he's compensated for it by running up margins elsewhere. But the influx of unprecedented immigration 
has gradually and relentlessly shifted a number of counties to the Democrats over the past few elections. You cannot escape the conclusion that unless there is a cool-off on overall immigration, the unprecedented size and duration of this wave, constantly reinforcing itself, will ensure that there are not enough second-generation voters assimilating into constitutional values to offset the new influx voting for big government. This is a clear distinction from past waves of immigration. Obviously, conservatives need to reach out to all new voters from all parts of the world to sell their message. But numbers and time matter greatly. Constitutional values can be sold to a melting pot of Americans. It will not resonate with a salad bowl. The bottom line is this. There are many good policy reasons to cool down mass migration at this point. We need a more balanced migration system for cultural, economic, and security reasons. But for Republicans who don't care about policy and only care about political survival, they must understand that unless they change their tune on immigration and do so immediately, they and their party will become completely irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. And that's exactly what the Democrats want. They want to change the voting population. They want to change the voting population. You can't persuade enough voters, then you change the voters. It's something that the Republicans don't get. And uh, I'll give you an example. Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa. Now we're talking about a massive amnesty program. There's no other way to dress this up. That's what's being proposed by the White House and being supported by both Republican chambers in in Congress. Harris Faulkner is really quite sharp on the Fox News channel. She has Joni Ernst. Joni Ernst, who supposedly was a Tea Party candidate on Fox News today. Listen to this. Cut, 10, go. Do you think it's conservative enough uh, for your colleagues in the House, Republicans there? I am hopeful that we will be able to present a plan that will work in the House as well. Again, is is mirrored off of the White House's proposed policy, but mm-hmm. I think it is conservative, especially when we look at those recipients. They are here through no fault of their own. Um, a lot of them will argue amnesty, and I say you can't give amnesty to someone who hasn't broken the law. Sounds like a leftist. Of course you can. But it'll never be enough. You want to hear Jorge Ramos, who is dual citizenship. He votes in Mexico and he votes in the United States. To me, he is a destructive and dangerous demagogue. A leftist. Here he is on CNN last night, of course. Cut 12, go. The fact is that Republicans with this negotiation, they want to change the essence, I think, of the United States. Now, this is a man who is dual citizenship, born in Mexico. Now he's going to tell us about changing the essence of the United States. He's a disgrace. Go ahead. America white again? Is that is that the deal? What I Make America white again? I'm sick of these racists on TV. I'm sick of them. Make America white again? Why? Are we limiting immigration from countries that have Hispanics or African Americans or Asians? Are we demanding more immigrants from Eastern Europe, from Western Europe, from Scandinavia? What are they talking about? 
to constantly use this race card is so destructive to this country. And this jerk, this clown, this fool, who's given a national platform day in and day out to spew his poison, is one of the reasons why everybody's at everybody's throats around this country. You can't even have an honest discussion. Want to make America white again? And I'm sick and tired of the majority population in this country being trashed all the time, too, because of their skin color. Why is it that illegal alien children are dreamers, but when you have something to say, it's, what are you talking about? You want to make America white again? Who brought up race? Nobody brought up race, except him. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. Hey, whatever happened to that author, Michael Wolf? Hey, whatever happened to that professor of psychology at Yale? Bendy Lee, Bandy Lee, whatever. Hey, whatever happened to all that sexual harassment going on there on Capitol Hill and in Hollywood? We don't hear about any new cases anymore. It suddenly stopped. Hey. Hey, whatever happened to collusion with Russia? Collusion. Hey. All right. Let's go to Christopher, Los Angeles, California, the great 870, the answer, K-R-L-A. Go. Hey, Mark. Uh, it's an absolute honor to speak with you. And I just want Thank to say you. before I ask my question, I'm going to law school this fall, and you've been an absolute inspiration and guiding voice to take up the fight against leftism, and I thank you for that. Thank um, you, sir, and good luck to you, too. Go ahead. A uh, previous caller had mentioned that Israeli police were impartial when you corrected them and said, there is leftist leadership, and it prompted the question in me, how is it that leftists have come to so pervasively dominate institute, major institutions in America and in Israel, even the conservative institutions like law enforcement? Because they work on it. Because that's what progressivism is all about, to control the instrumentalities of government, because government's where all the action is. So whereas most of us go along our lives and do our own thing, that's not what progressive activists do. Progressive activists want to control you. And they know that in order to control you, they need to control these various entities in government. And look, look what they're doing to Netanyahu. Look what they're doing to Trump. They lose elections. <clears throat> and yet, uh, every damn day in this country, we're talking about what the leftist progressives and their media mouthpieces are doing and talking about when it comes to Trump. They drive the agenda. Same with Israel. They've been driving this agenda against Netanyahu, investigation after investigation, for years now. And so, uh, you know, and you get these, these left-wing kook politicians, whether in Israel or the United States, they do whatever damn well pretty much they want to do, including selling out their own countries. I mean, what Obama did, to me that is a crime against the future generations of this country, and other countries, for that matter, with his Iran deal. It's the most despicable thing any president has ever done. Behind the back of the American people, this is why Bob Corker needs to go back to Chattanooga and get on his choo-choo. Anyway, that's the point. Whether it's education, whether it's the courtrooms, whether it's the media, whether it's Hollywood, 
Whereas, you know, most people just work, they want to make a living, they have certain interests and so forth. For the progressive, they want to control, they want to brainwash, they want to dictate. They want to impose their ideology, their views, their belief system on all the rest of us. There can be no challenges, there can be no other views, whether it's climate change or genitalia, whether you have genitalia, don't have genitalia, what you do with your genitalia, whether you do with your cakes, whether you make a cake, who you can make a cake for, they're in charge. It's uh, yeah, you're absolutely right, but it's uh, the consequences of their actions are absolutely destructive to Americanism and uh, liberty. Right, you're, uh, that, going in, that, that, you're going into law school. I want to send you a copy of Rediscovering Americanism. Okay, you, Mark, I just purchased that. Oh, uh, just recently. I have to read. I'm only on the first. I only read the first chapter. Uh, How about Plunder and Deceit? Do you have that one? I do not, and I, it's on my book list now. All right. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll send you a copy of that. Don't hang up. Mr. Producer and Mr. Callscreen will get right to you. And wish you all the best in law school, too. Thank you, sir. All right, folks, we'll be right back. Conservative. No ifs, ands, or buts. Call in at 877-381-3811. Thousands of athletes are going for gold. And it's the clear champions of the bathroom. Dollar Shave Club deserves a gold medal, let me tell you. Dollar Shave Club has everything you need to look, smell, and feel your best. Shampoo, body wash, toothpaste, you name it. And, of course, the best razors I've ever used. I get an amazing, high-quality shave every morning from my DSC Executive Razor. Plus, their Dr. Carver's Butter Shave is the gold standard of my morning. Helps the razor gently glide across your skin. Dollar Shave Club delivers everything. That means no more trips to the store, wandering the aisles, hunting for razor, shampoo, and toothpaste, and then paying the cashier, scanning and bagging. Go for the gold. Join Dollar Shave Club today, and for just 5 bucks, $5, with free shipping, you'll get the six-blade executive razor plus trial sizes of shave butter and body cleanser. Then keep the blades coming for a few bucks more a month. They just show up. It's on schedule. It's the greatest thing. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash mark. dollarshaveclub.com slash mark. One more time. It's a great Valentine's gift, by the way. DollarShaveClub.com slash Mark. You know, David Brody, I consider him a really good friend. He's a good guy. Uh, when my books come out, he always asks if I want to come on with him to do an interview for the 700 Club. Um, CBN has been absolutely outstanding in their reporting, I think, over the years. And David Brody's been a main reason for that. When I was in Israel, they allowed me to use their broadcast facilities to broadcast my program. I don't know what I would have done without them. And Dave Brody and Scott Lamb, his co-author, have written an outstanding book, one you might not expect, a spiritual biography, The Faith of Donald J. Trump, The Faith of Donald J. Trump. David Brody, how are you, my friend? Mark Levin, so great to hear your voice, and thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, sir. Well, it's a great pleasure, and uh, it's certainly no burden by me. This book is fascinating. Okay, first of all, <laughs> you didn't have to force this book, did you? In other words, 
This is something you really believe as applies to Donald Trump. Yeah, it's a faith journey. It's a spiritual voyage he's on. And, and I want to be clear, Mark, and you know, because you know the haters are out there. And uh, look, this, this book is not called the book is called the Faith of Donald Trump. It's not called the Sainthood of Donald Trump. And that's important. It's also not the Lamb's Book of Life that we hear so much about. Look, God's going to have the final say on all of that, and thank goodness CNN and their anchors don't have the final say on all of that. So that's for sure. But look, you know, you know, Walter Cronkite, the the liberal icon, uh, used to say this. You know, used to say, "In seeking truth, you have to get both sides of a story." Well, you know what? Here we are with this other side that you haven't heard, and. Uh, it's really a deep dive as it relates to some of the research that we've seen about his, his religious roots and all of that. But ultimately, this is about his worldview. And as we delve deeper, we notice in the last two years or so, he's gotten a lot more curious about God and the things of God. He's surrounded himself with people that like Pentecostals and a lot of folks. That, you know, he has no idea what in the world just hit him. And he, he, he's fascinated by it all. And I think we're starting to see some of that, as we would like to say, in the evangelical world, spiritual fruit. Look at the National Prayer Breakfast, Mark. I mean, the first National Prayer Breakfast, it was all about the, the apprentice ratings and, uh, you know, list his accomplishments. What happened just a few weeks ago at the, the, the second National Prayer Breakfast speech that he gave? It was less about him, as a matter of fact, none about him, and more about God. I think we're starting to see uh, some of the dot, dot, dot to this story. It's interesting. Well, I agree. I've noticed two things. Number one, he speaks more uh, fluently, if you will, smoothly, easily, comfortably about God and religion, about, excuse me, about life and so forth. And, and number two, I think he really believes it, the way he talks about it. And, and I notice it appears more and more often in not just his formal speeches, but his informal comments. Do you notice that, too? Absolutely. He, he 100% believes it. You know, he, as you know, he's 71. He grew up, uh, you know, he was born in 1946. I mean, this is a guy that remembers, you know, prayer in school and Bible reading in school, and he remembers where you actually dressed up when you went to uh, your place of worship and you didn't come in baggy pants and, and sneakers. I mean, this is an old-school guy, and, uh, and so you have that, and now what we're seeing is a curiosity by Trump. There's stories in the book about him approaching Mike Pence about going to church. I mean, in other words, Trump wanted to go to uh, church with Pence. It wasn't Pence going up to him. It was. Here's another story. Uh, there was one time actually during the uh, his first month or two. You remember that March for Life rally in January of 2017? And what did we see? Well, turns out that it was Donald Trump who sent Mike Pence to the March for Life rally. It's a story in the book about how Kellyanne Conway was going to go, and then uh, Donald Trump looked over at Mike Pence and said. Hey, Mike, why don't you go as well? You need to be going. Uh, Donald Trump had a conflict that day, so that's why Mike Pence went. It wasn't because Mike Pence decided to go. It was because Donald Trump told him he should go. Uh, so, you know, these are little things that, that have come up in the book, and just a lot of different uh, a, a picture that the media doesn't quite get at all. His approach to Jerusalem and Israel obviously was a campaign promise. Do you also think there's now a more faith-related belief in this? Yeah, there, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, a lot of people like to say, oh, well, his, uh, his son-in-law is Jewish and Ivanka and the whole... Look, this, this is a guy that believes in Judeo-Christian principles. Now, that freaks out the mainstream media, and they need to take smelling salts. I get, I get that. But, but the truth of the matter is, he, he has been very consistent on Israel since... I, look, I interviewed him nine times uh, during the, on the campaign trail. He said, we're going to move the embassy to Jerusalem. Um, the, the, the Jewish people are friends of mine. I love the Jewish... Well, you know what? He's delivered. This guy, this president, has an A-plus in evangelical world, and Israel is a top-tier issue in the evangelical world, and he's delivered. 
<coughs> excuse me, one more time here. Let me ask you this about the president and his faith. What is his faith? Well, that's a good question. So let me say a couple things, and I guess you can call this the disclaimer. We make sure, look, as you know, Mark, I'm a journalist, and it's not up to me. It'll be up to God. It won't be up to me to, to tell uh, Donald Trump what his faith is and you or me or anybody out there what their faith is and whether or not they're going here or there. I will say this. We did an interview with Donald Trump in the Oval Office. It was in late August for this book. Sorry, Michael Wolf, but yeah, we did an interview with Donald Trump. Yeah, right. We did two with Mike Pence in the West Wing. Donald Trump says, I am a believer. I am a believer is what he says, and of course, he's not the most eloquent when it comes to that. Why? Because what he also told us in that Oval Office interview is that this is the first time, this is a quote from him, this is the first time I've ever been around people like this. You know, I didn't grow up with these folks, and I sure didn't see him in New York business circles. He's very honest, isn't he? He really is, and he said mm -hmm. that actually, it turns out all of these people have made a huge impact, that's the word he used, impact on me, and that's exactly what we're seeing because Mike Pence in those two interviews, talked about Donald Trump being a believer in Jesus Christ. That's what he said. Uh, and he said it with conviction. Then Paul White, who, as you know, is his closest spiritual advisor, uh, says that 100% she has had in-depth conversations with him, and he understands um, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the way it is, and all, all of the things that come with Christianity. And so Paul White's very clear in the book as well. So, you know, th this is what people tell me. And look, it, I'm a journalist. I, I report what they tell me. These are people that don't have an agenda. Look, Paul White wants nothing out of Donald Trump. Uh, Mike Pence doesn't need anything out of Donald Trump. So the bottom line is uh, they have some credibility to go with it. The other thing is when he's in Palm Beach, he sneaks off the church. <laughs> he does. He, and he, he he really does, and and he's he's also <coughs> excuse me made the point as your book indicates as president, he feels now more than ever he needs God to help give him guidance. Well, that's exactly right. And as a matter of fact, I did the third interview with him when he was when he became president, and he said to me in that interview, "I need God even more now." And then just a few weeks ago at the television network anchor luncheon before the State of the Union, and by the way, I was there along with my co-anchor Jenna Browder, CBN, with two seats there in the state dining room with President Trump. And sorry, but CNN was at the end of the table, and NBC, who knows where they were, they bought a snack bar. I'm not sure. Under the table. Yeah, under the table. Um, and look, during that network anchor television lunch, he says to us, he says, "You've, when I was in the business circles in New York City, there was nothing when it came to heart. There was no heart. It was all business. He goes, now, as president, you've got to govern with heart, is what he says. So you combine that. You combine, I need God even more. And then you see the National Prayer Breakfast speech that he just gave a few weeks ago, and you start to say, well, wait a minute. Some things are adding up here, showing that, indeed, we're seeing movement and boy, God, God seems to be moving him. And the point of the book, simply, Mark, is that there's a curiosity on his part, and God can work with curiosity in anybody. How about the other family members? How about the First Lady? you get any sense of that? Well, you know, there's, there's been a lot of stories about her, and we decided not to really delve into that, uh, just because, well, quite frankly, we thought we had quite a bit of material. This is a big enough on. topic. I mean, the book is significant. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And so we really didn't do that. Um, and, you know, it's funny because the liberals, when it first came out, I remember on Twitter, they were saying things like, oh, great, the faith of Donald Trump. And then they would show a, a picture of a blank page and say, look, I just received an advanced copy. Well, that's hilarious. But guess what? It's over 300 pages long. And why do we do that, Mark? Because we go into his Lutheran 
father roots in Germany. We go into his uh, Presbyterian Protestant mother's roots in Scotland, and you see the you see that John Knox Scottish uh, influence, if you will. Uh, that that uh, I'm going to be in your face. It, it's very interesting to see and. Uh, it's been a, I will say this, on his mother's side, by the way, it's in the book, we trace it DNA-wise, it looks like he will, he does have some Viking blood in him. What a shock that Donald Trump has some Viking blood in him. <laughs> now, let me ask you a, a side point here. How's Mr. Robertson doing? Well, I got to tell you, I mean, uh, how do I say it? He's a walking miracle. I, I mean, you know, he had a Tell everybody what happened and sure, what's he had the a, situation. Sure, he had a stroke. I mean, he, he literally, I mean, understand, if we go six months ago, seven, seven months or so, he fell off a horse. Let's start there. Broke seven, seven or eight ribs, not quite sure. Seven or eight ribs went left and right. Anyhow, he had all sorts of problems. Tore off part of his thumb, back on the air within a few weeks. Now, a stroke just seven days ago seven, eight days ago, and boom, back on the air. I, I mean, well, clearly God's not done with him yet. He's doing great. Thanks for asking. And he's well into his 80s, right? He's 87. He's 87, 87 years, old. years old. He's going to be Methuselah. Mm-hmm. Aren't we all? <laughs> now, uh, back to the President of the United States. So what were you surprised to learn as you and Scott Lamb dug into this book about the President when it comes to his spirituality and so forth? Well, there's so much. Uh, first of all, I thought what was interesting, well, let, let me just say this. From a lineage standpoint, and the liberals, if they want to blame um, Donald Trump, I can tell you right now, if they're concerned that he was even born, they can blame the German government. Because what we learned was is that Donald Trump's Grandpa. Oh, that'll go over well with the liberals. Oh, yeah, right, exactly. Now, good point, actually. Look, what we learn is Donald Trump's grandfather, actually, you know, he came to America a couple times in the late 1800s. Anyhow, he finally settles down in Germany with Donald Trump's, obviously, grandmother. There, they, he, She's five months pregnant. And the German government says, you need to leave. You can't be a citizen of Germany because you haven't served time in the army. You were in America. You can't do it. So they kicked him out of the country. They said, you got to get out. So he leaves. And indeed, five months later, the mother, Donald Trump's grandmother, gives birth to Fred Trump, Donald Trump's father, in America. Mm -hmm. If the German mm -hmm. government had said, as you know, had said, no, you're, you're fine, you can stay in Germany, there's no Donald Trump, there's no Fred mm -hmm. Trump over there, and therefore Fred Trump doesn't meet Mary Trump, his mother, and there's no Donald Trump. So there you go, liberals, you can blame the German government. <laughs> no, they'd rather blame ours, trust me. Oh, you're probably right. This is a fascinating book. And I'm only about a third into it, and I need to delve into it more this weekend. I want to strongly encourage you folks out there to take a look at this by my dear friend David Brody and his co-author Scott Lamb, The Faith of Donald J. Trump, a spiritual biography. And you're right. You report this. You write this as a reporter. Your, your, your finger's not on the scale. But you learn a lot of things about him, and you got a lot of little stories in here that are absolutely fascinating. So it's up on Mark Levin Show Facebook, Mark Levin Show Twitter. We link right to Amazon, I take it, Mr. Producer. And again, I want to strongly encourage you. This is actually a very uplifting book, mm -hmm. David. And we could use a few uplifting books about now. Uh, and I want to thank you for writing it. And I want to thank you for uh, being very supportive of this program as well. Well, Mark, I always love to do that. And I thank you for the kind words. It means so much. I really do appreciate this. All right. God bless, brother. All right. You take care of yourself. David Brody. A real decent human being. This is a really solid book. The Faith of Donald J. Trump, a spiritual biography. You'll never hear about it on CNN or MSNBC unless they're mocking it. I want to encourage you to get a copy. You can 
Get it from Amazon right now and have it tomorrow or the next day and read it over the weekend. It's really a compelling book. You'll learn a lot more about your president, about my president, than you thought you already knew. I'll be right back. Healthy food doesn't have to be difficult or expensive. Great food is just a click away on ThriveMarket.com. That's ThriveMarket.com, the revolutionary online marketplace on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. And I really want you to check out their website and give this a try, okay? Unlike other big box retailers, ThriveMarket.com offers all your favorite top-selling food brands you would find at your local health food store, but at wholesale prices. Now, they also deliver everything conveniently to your doorstep with free shipping, all for 25 to 50% below retail prices. Thrive Market, that's ThriveMarket.com, carries the top 400 brands in the organic food space, and you can sort their entire catalog by 90 values, like non-GMO, certified organic, dairy-free, that would be me, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, so forth, so on. Now, I'm a new customer of ThriveMarket.com. It's been a game-changer, which is why I'm excited about this limited-time author. ThriveMarket.com is made available to you, my listeners. So I hope you'll take advantage of this. Get a 30-day free trial. And 25% off your first order. Hello? Get a 30-day free trial and 25% off your first order. This is what you do. Go to thrivemarket.com slash mark. It's that simple. Thrivemarket.com slash mark. This deal is really quite unbelievable. 25% off your first order and a 30-day trial. So really check it out. I know you're going to like it. We like it. It's thrivemarket.com slash mark. Do it right now. Do it today. Thrivemarket.com slash mark. You all really do need to try this out. I know you're going to love it. Renee, San Jose, California, Sirius Satellite. Go. Good afternoon, Mark, or good evening. Uh, I'm a big fan. Um, retired Air Force. I just God bless. On, I just wanted to comment on this guy, Ramos. You know, yes. they have a beef with America being what he calls white again. I believe the Spanish came in and took over this part of the nation way back when. And you know, if he goes back and thinks, he probably has more of a beef with them than he does with the American settlers that came in. That's all I had to say. All right, sir. Thank you for your call. I really am uh, sick and tired of this guy. Shows no respect to the country and then lectures us on... The American culture, what America is. We want to make America white again. Tell me, do I go into Mexico and talk that way about Mexico? Well, he's a citizen of America. He's a dual citizen. And I don't like that either. I don't like that either. What do you think of that? All right, let's continue. Let us go to Stan, Kilgore, Texas, the great KTBB. Go quickly. Yes, I was wondering if you could think of any government agency or a department that was not politicized and weaponized by the Democrats in the Obama administration. Well, I don't even know all the departments and agencies. 
to be honest with you. But to answer your question, no, they invaded all of them. It's like the body snatchers. All right, my friend, it is like the body snatchers or the aliens. Ladies and gentlemen, we salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel, and you, the people who make this country work. Thank God for you. Thank you for being out there. I am blessed. I know it. Trust me. And I'll see you tomorrow. Check out Levin TV tonight, okay? God bless you.